The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, they're perfect. <laughs> I know, I know you like when we come in hot, Paul. This is, this is Dr. Matthew Frank Watto here with my good friend, Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, and a mystery co-host who will who will mention in a minute. Tonight we are going to be talking about uh, the Kittleson Rules Acute Heart Failure episode. This is a triple distilled version where we're going to try to, and the, Paul, this is a tough thing to do because she, this thing was packed, but we are going to try to distill it down to our favorite pearls. Yeah, no, this sh- I, I listened back, obviously, in preparation for this episode. It was just, it was all killer, no filler. Even, like, her talking about her brownies was sort of compelling and fascinating podcasting. So there was just, there was no, there was no error. It was, it was amazing. She's incredible. She is. Paul, before you introduce our third co-host, can you, can you tell the audience, in general, what is it that we do on Curbsiders? In general, what we do on Curbsiders is we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you alluded to, this is a little bit of a special episode where we distill down, as best we can, a jam-packed episode. In this case, it was the inpatient management of acute decompensated heart failure, mostly talking about systolic heart failure, heart failure produced ejection fraction, though we did touch on reserved ejection fraction a little bit. Um, but before we get into all of the amazing Kittleson rules and all of the, the tips and tricks for diagnosing and managing, I should, I, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our, our third special super secret uh, co-host, the amazing Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Garbs, how are you? Good. I feel like I need to mention all my middle names because you guys put them in. Elizabeth, Catherine, Philomena, Garbatelli. That's got basically every letter of the alphabet in it besides X. <laughs> but yeah, I'm doing good tonight. Amazing. I My grandmother is a Philomena and uh, I, I'm very fond of that name. So fantastic. <laughs> all right. With an F or a PH? With an F. That's the Italian way. Oh, gosh. So much cooler. All right. My grandmother... <laughs> Uh, oh well sorry nanny um okay (laughs) i should mention i should mention that this episode was produced by the great dr deb gorth and with infographics by edison young eddie jong paul did you know that he was young eddie i didn't know that until recently i saw something on uh on our instagram (laughs) no i i thought you were just using acute affectation but no that's that's good to know i love it i love it everyone's everyone on the show has to have a nickname Okay, Beth, uh, you're coming at this. You're you're in your clinical years. What did you find surprising about this episode uh, or intimidating? Like, what was most like practice changing or enlightening for you? I thought that this episode was a super helpful overview of the topic that you're going to be dealing with every day on the wards. You know, I feel like that's this is the number one thing I did on my acting internship was sort of like assessing people's volume status and. Dr. Kittleston's rules are just fantastic. I actually, this is, we'll get into more of the physical exam tips, but I really liked that she went into ways to understand how to ask about orthopnea and paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea in a way that actually gives you more information. Uh, You know, ask them, you know, are they using more pillows? Why are they using more pillows? Do they feel better if they wake up after in the middle of the night after only a little bit, or do they need to stand up and walk around? 
Um, so she just gave so many helpful, really practical ways to to get a better sense of people's volume status than I think I had in my mind before I heard this episode. We are going to get back to the exam, but you you brought us into the history by telling us how to ask about orthopnea and PND. This failure mnemonic that she talked about, Paul. Let's let's talk through this and remind us that even though it's a failure mnemonic, we're not calling our patients a failure. Is that is that what you're recommending? Well, I'm not now, now. You phrase that in a way that like, I feel like I get myself in trouble depending on whether I say yes or no because I I sort of lost the thread there. I I, I think the point that you're making, which I 100% agree with, is it is crucial that we do not blame the patient. Like this is, I I think you mentioned actually at Grand Rounds talk that you, I think we both had actually heard, and Dr. Kittleson agree with this, that this is a chronic progressive disease. And oftentimes, well, not oftentimes, but sometimes you can have a decompensation and you're not going to identify a trigger because that's the way progressive diseases just happen. So you, and that may be a patient who's more tenuous and that may be a hint to their prognosis, but sometimes patients just have decompensation. Other times, she has a mnemonic to help sort of figure out what things may have potentially triggered things. And so things like F for forgetting medications, and, I, and I'm, I'm not going to go through them because I, I personally, I'm sorry, I'm hanging my head in shame. You can't see this at home because uh, I don't actually use mnemonics, but they're just thinking ideologically what actually may have been triggering things. So things like forgetting medications, things like lifestyle choices, which again, I don't quite love, but meaning by that, maybe having an excess of sodium that may have sent off an exacerbation or renal failure from aggression of kidney disease. And she reminds us throughout the episode that the, the kidneys and the heart are inherently linked. And it's if the heart can confuse the kidneys, and then things kind of go south from there. That's my ingenious pathophysiologic interpretation of heart failure. So taking a good history and trying to find out a cause, but also recognizing you may not is sort of the larger point that I, I kind of took away from that. If there's a failure in this at all, it's the failure of the medical establishment slash our society to like educate people about food. I feel like when people make a like slip up on their diet, they're like, oh, I've been so healthy. I'm eating soup. And then soup is so bad for you because we put so much sodium in it. So it's like people trying to make good choices. And like we have failed to like really educate and failed to like not have so much sodium in foods. It is a toxic food environment, Garbs. That's what I that's what I tell my children all the time. It's a toxic <laughs> food environment out there. There's there's an abundance of potentially bad choices. But I, well, I it wasn't even this episode. I like but I, I don't think, but I feel like around holidays we're always looking for the magical hot dog that sends someone screaming into a CHF exacerbation. Like it's not <laughs> if it if all it takes is one hot dog to do it, there are probably other things going on and you may that may again that may be a hint towards prognostic stuff right. or there may be multifactorial things that um then this was just sort of the tipping point. But you shouldn't be so tenuous that um yeah, that that one drink or that one hot dog or that one misdose of ferrosamide is just going to send you screaming into an exacerbation. Exactly. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. This is a progressive illness. It is tough to treat, even if they follow everything we're telling them. Sometimes there is they're they're still going to end up in the hospital. So just remember that. This goes back to what we talked about gout. Um, our Dr. Nioji told us she doesn't like to push too much. Some patients will identify. Oh yeah, I had too much beer. That always triggers my gout okay, that's fine. They're identifying certain things that trigger them, but I think we shouldn't be asking about it or blaming them. You know, not everybody that has a certain amount of sodium or beer or whatever has these awful outcomes from it. So it is something about their physiology. So I think we've said enough about that. Hey, curbsiders. How are you doing? How's your job? Are you happy? Are you looking for something else? Have you ever thought about locum tenens? You looking to make some extra money on the side? Well, locumstory.com, they're our sponsor today, and they have a fantastic website with a lot of interesting facts and frequently asked questions about just what is locums 
And how can I get into this thing? Because let me tell you something, Locum's physicians, they make 33% more on average. And did you know that one third of Locum's physicians actually are working a full-time job in addition to it? And Locum's is great. You can work close to home. You can work in another state. You can even work in another country. If travel is your thing, this might be great for you because you can work when, where, and however much you want. And if you're intimidated and you're saying, hey, I don't want to deal with the hassle, well, most agencies actually arrange and pay for the cost of your airfare, rental car, and your hotel during your assignment. So all that's off your plate. So where can you start? Visit locumstory.com to peruse their trends by specialty tool. They have a list of the top 10 agencies, endless FAQs, and a quiz to help you determine if locums is a fit for your current situation. Again, visit locumstory.com to see if a locum tenens assignment is right for you. And now, Paul, your favorite thing, the physical exam. What what was your favorite pearl that she gave us here? I'm sure you I'm sure you loved every minute of it. Well, it's, I I honestly did, um, and I, I agree with all of her points. But if, since you're nice enough to ask about the specific point, I, I think that she said that she was scared by sinus tachycardia or tachycardia frightened her, um, which I thought was, it was just a terrific point. It's sort of a harbinger of decompensation. The heart ha- sort of running out of options. It just increases its rate in order to sort of try to facilitate forward flow. And I think thinking about that as a harbinger of badness to come is not something I think that springs to mind for for a lot of us all the time. So I thought that was an incredibly helpful hint. Um, and then she also waxed poetic about um, assessing JVP, and it's her favorite thing to do. And she talks about getting very zen with it, which I I appreciate it because there's a lot of there can be a lot of mystery around it in terms of um, and a lot of dogma about how you actually do it. But it sounds like she really just sort of sits with the patient, gently turns the neck so that she's not tamponading off um, the veins with the ne- neck musculature, which I thought was a great tip, and just sort of staring and spending time with the patient, just sort of being present and actually evaluating and then also checking for, and I, I want to make sure I say this right so we don't have uh, an army of cardiologists um, adding me, hepatojugular reflux. So by pushing <laughs> on the abdomen, increasing the intra-abdominal pressure, and then augmenting um, the jugular vein, that can also be a, a great physical exam finding to sort of uh, emphasize the fact that you're in fact dealing with decompensated heart failure. So I, I thought those were the things. I think the other thing you were alluding to is uh, her, her thoughts on the pulmonary exam. So I will defer that discussion to you and Garbs. Well, well before I, we I, get to that, I would just like, actually, Garbs, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I love when she said she has like a Zen approach to the JVP, because I feel like especially when I started assessing for the JVP, I had the opposite of a Zen approach. I was like, this is the most stressful part of the physical exam. Like, I need a ruler to put on the patient's <laughs> sternum and like calculate math from the angle. Of, like, I don't know. I had like a the There's opposite. a protractor involved, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I really liked that she she kind of soothed me, you know, although I do need a light to like really see. I, that was like my one role, I feel like, on rounds. I'd be the one with like my little pet light and just shine it on the patient, <laughs> fluorescent. Well, combine some of the pearls from this exam with our approach to shortness of breath episode, which was number 236, which came just a little while later. When you're looking, if if you had a patient and you didn't yet know they had heart failure, the some of the most suggestive things that you could look for would be elevated JVP, and you could listen for an S3 gallop, which is the Kentucky one, Paul. Yes, uh, not the Tennessee. Or you could try to feel for a displaced PMI, which is the point of maximal impulse. So those 
those are the three things that you know would be some of the higher yield things you could do for exam. Of course, you can look for lower extremity edema, but that there's a lot of potential causes for that. And to get on to the lung exam, Dr. Kittleson was really down on listening. She was not really a fan of listening for crackles and said, in fact, she said she doesn't listen for crackles because it doesn't give her any information about specifically the heart failure the patient may have. But Paul, you were worried about not listening to the lungs. And I, I think you made a good point there. So I'll, I'll leave it to you. Well, I, thanks, Matt. Yeah, no, I, I think the point that I was going to make, so I, I think Dr. Kittleson's specific point was in terms of assessing volume, using crackles is not a great way to do that. And I think that is perfectly fair. And she's right. There are lots of things that, that can cause crackles or adventitious lung sounds at the bases. I might just say that patients can have more than one thing and patients can... So you may have a patient who has uh, both acute decompensated heart failure and perhaps a COPD exacerbation. You may have a patient who has a large right-sided pleural effusion as a result of their systolic heart failure. So I, I think that there is value in doing a, a pulmonary examination in a patient who has shortness of breath. I, I will say, but I think her point was that in terms of cracking, tracking volume status, specifically using crackles as a means to do that is not terribly useful. But I think for someone who has shortness of breath, regardless of the underlying etiology, just making sure you're doing your due diligence in the lungs is not a bad thing. And, I, if, and I'm, I feel like I'm talking too much for this. And I'm sorry to do it, but I just want to go make the, the larger point that the way she used the exam, she made the points that I loved is that you cannot make the diagnosis of acute decompensated heart failure without the physical examination. Like there's no one lab finding that's going to point you in that direction. You need to actually look at the patient. And then she also uses it to stratify. And I, I think we've all seen the the two by two square of the, are they warm and wet or are they cold and wet? And really in this case, these are the things that we're worried about, meaning are they congested and well perfused. So are they warm and wet or are they congested and not perfusing, in which case then you got trubs and that's that's the cold and wet patient. So I think she also uses the exam not just to make the diagnosis, but also to, to stratify how bad the patient is. Can I just say that I love that you said you've got trubs? <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure. Yep. He's still, he's still hip. He knows the lingo. <laughs> <laughs> that's no one's lingo. <laughs> uh, to build on the cold and wet thing, I would just say if your patient is cold and wet, they're not making urine and they're confused, call for help. That person is very sick. So uh, that that's what that's all I wanted to add on to that. And back to the lung exam or to the more modern physical exam, Paul, a lot of us carry a point of care ultrasound now. And I have found you can ultrasound for JVP um, for people with bigger necks or uh, beards, neck beards. It can be helpful. And the other thing is you can look for B-lines in the lungs. Mm -hmm. And as you diurese the patient, you can actually, you will actually start to see less B-lines. You can look for effusions. And of course, you can look at the heart with a focused cardiac ultrasound. So I do think that's going to become more and more standard for internists as we're approaching these patients. And the I can link to it. The ACP actually wrote an article. Um, the evidence quality is building. I will, I will say that, but they did write something. This was in the annals in 2021 on appropriate use of point of care ultrasonography in patients with acute dyspnea in the emergency department or inpatient settings. So that is a, I think a big win for all of us POCUS nerds out there that this is getting, you know, now written into national guidelines. And I think it will become more and more common as we move forward. Let's talk about labs and not so much imaging here, but let's talk about some of the, the labs that she liked to have. Beth, what did you think about her approach to the labs? Um, I found it was she really simplified things for us. Yeah, I liked when she said she'd be on a desert island and the desert island had a lab. These are the three tests she would get, um, the creatinine, <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. sodium, potassium. <laughs> 
Um, and I think that's helpful yeah. for learners. So every day. Yeah, prioritize what we need to think about when we're seeing the, you know, BMP for these patients, what you want to look at. BMP, basic metabolic, not BNP. We'll yes. get into that. Okay. <laughs> so the reason she likes those three labs is is because you got to watch the potassium when you're aggressively giving diuretics. Patients with a low sodium, like less than less than 130, certainly down in the low 120s, you got to be very worried about that person, um, the status of their heart failure, um, and then the patient with the rising creatinine. So those those are the reasons that that you follow those things. And you mentioned the BNP, so N for November, and that is something that I have. You know, it's so tempting to want to trend that thing, Paul. Paul, should we trend it? <laughs> she was very clear there's no utility in, in trending, at least in the inpatient side, or doing daily BNPs or trending that way. So that is not something that she is currently doing. And I think right. the guidelines back her up on that. They do. The, gu- the guidelines mainly talk about the pro NT pro BNP or the BNP as a prognostic test you can get as a one-time thing. Elevated BNP is selecting patients that are just in general higher risk, cardiac risk as you move forward, but certainly not something that you need to be checking on all patients and and following over time. And she said, you know, if if there's any emergency physicians out there, don't don't page her to the ER just because <laughs> someone has an elevated BNP. Yep. I think Paul already made the point that to to diagnose a heart failure exacerbation, you really have to talk to and examine the patient and, and find some evidence of it, not just the lab value. We talked about weights. She doesn't care so much about whatever the patient thinks their dry weight is, but she does think it's good practice to, you know, document what was the admission weight, what was the discharge weight on the discharge summary so people know, okay, we sent them out of the hospital. At that time, we thought they were decongested and they were feeling well enough to leave and this was what their weight was. I think that is some useful information just for reference, especially if they come back two weeks later and their weight's like 20 pounds more. The only other test that we really talked about was the the right heart cath, Swan-Gantz catheter. And um, she said, and I think this practice is pretty much what I've seen everywhere that I've been. And Paul or Beth, if, if either of you have seen differently, let me know. But typically, she goes to that when the patient's getting sicker despite the medical therapy, you know, high doses of diuretics, they're becoming hypotensive or the creatinine's bumping. For me, I usually start to think about, does this person need a right heart cath? If I've really been giving them what what I think is like the medications they need to be having, and I'm just kind of confused, what's their volume status? Are they still wet? Are they, so you want to get that like wedge pressure and try to figure out what you're doing. Cause sometimes you just feel like you're, you're not sure if to be more aggressive or if you're going to hurt the patient. And uh, when you're confused, this, this test can be helpful. Yeah, you made the, the the great point, sort of going back to the history, that sometimes patients will sequester their fluid in different places, so it's not always the peripheral edema, and sometimes patients sort of store it centrally, and I find like those patients have oftentimes a very challenging volume examination, um, despite your best efforts, and if you're just diuresing and diuresing, the creatinine keeps creeping up and up, and the patient feels worse and worse, like that's that's the time to, to call in the cavalry and just make sure that you yeah. really have a sense of what the volume status is. Well, let's talk about the management of, of acute decompensated heart failure, and I, I should mention we are talking in this section, uh, the treatment section, largely about HEF-REF, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, systolic heart failure, whatever you want to call it. Oh, I don't, what are the kids calling it these days? HEF-REF, they I like think. The HEF-REF, and have you seen the recovered ejection fraction? I've now seen abbreviated <laughs> with like the, the HEC-REF, which is just one of the worst <laughs> things I've ever seen. Like, 
I think, uh, yeah, yeah. That sounds like um, a, a cartoon character from like a kid's book or something. It sounds like you're clearing your throat. Like <laughs> it was Hefkaruf or whatever. I, I, I can't even, it's, sorry. And I talked over you, Beth, forgive me. So Beth, uh, let's, what was your, so what was your favorite pearl from, from this section? And, and we talked about a ton of different things. A lot of good stuff here. I really liked her expert opinion about fluid and sodium, like in terms of when you're admitting this patient, what are you going to do for fluid restriction and diet? She recommends doing two liters fluid restriction and two grams sodium diet. The stricter rules doing 800 milliliter fluid restriction and 800 milligrams of salt is just going to make your patients unhappy. And there's not really evidence that it's going to benefit. So we have some links to some sources for that. But I, I always like to make my patients happy. So I liked that rule. She she even went so far as to suggest that if you're senior, as because we were given the hypothetical, Deb was the intern having to put in the admission orders, and she said if your senior tries to make you put a patient on an 800 ml fluid restriction and 800 milligram sodium diet, then you should make them eat that same diet because it <laughs> tastes terrible and they're going to be thirsty and they're going to be mad at you. So don't do that to your patients. There there are two two small studies that looked at the this like aggressive fluid and salt restriction and you know they didn't they they were negative trials. So this is not something we have really strong evidence for and it's certainly not patient centered to give such a strict fluid restriction and sodium restriction. So I think having no evidence and some evidence that it doesn't work we really shouldn't do this. Um it's not great for patients. Paul, what what are your thoughts? Right. And I think she made like, first of all, it's a non-sustainable intervention. It's like you're going to send someone home on an 800 milliliter fluid restriction. Like that's just not, it's, it's cruel and unusual punishment. And I think she also made the point that if, if that's what you're thinking about doing, then you've not sufficiently titrated their medications correctly. Yeah. Like this is like, that's not, you're, you're, right. you're chasing up the, you're barking up the wrong tree. If you think you're going to fix this by just restricting their fluids yeah. more and more mm -hmm. aggressively and same goes for sodium. And back to your point about like one hot dog tipping someone over, you know, that person was in trouble anyway. Um, right. She said that if, if the person can't tolerate like a two liter fluid restriction and a two gram sodium diet, and they're still getting horribly ill, you've got bigger problems than that extra gram of sodium, you know, that you're giving yep. them. It, it So I think that was also a nice like zoom out to the bigger picture that we're facing here. Now, the diuretics thing, this this came up recently on Twitter and people were talking about lower extremity edema and someone had sent out this article about like loop diuretics for edema and it made one of these, this is by Anisman in 2019, I believe it was in the BMJ or Lancet, it was one of the, one of the British journals and they mentioned that there's, with loop diuretics, there's not really a gentle diuresis, either you're hitting the patient's threshold or you're not. So it's like, it's not like uh, your your faucet in your house where you can like kind of turn it on a little bit and let the water drip out. It's like it's like a binary, like a light switch. It's either on or off. There's no dimmer switch either. So, Paul, what do you think about dosing of diuretics for HEF-REF in the hospital? What's the what do you think about that? So it's it is the frequently cited dose trial that we go by where it's we you you, you just need to be aggressive. I think is the point that Dr. Kittleson made. So the the dose trial talks about going. Two and a half times, I think at least, I believe is how it's phrased, their yeah. outpatient diuretic dose to actually really get the patients going. And, and she made the point that it's not, the maneuver is not you give someone diuretic and they don't make urine. So you just give them the same dose again. Like the idea is that you that, that's a signal that you need to increase the dose. So rather than increasing frequency, you'd actually need to increase the dose to your point to reach that that threshold where all of a sudden you turn on the faucet. Um, now, now I've just ruined your metaphor, forgive me. <laughs> then they, they start then they start making urine. And, and, and Dr. Kittleson is 
very aggressive in terms of what her diuresis is and really sort of bases it on the patient's clinical response and not really so much on arbitrary numbers. Like as much as the patient's um, potassium basically can tolerate it, <laughs> sounds yeah. like what she's going, I think is what she, she pushes for. I think she told us her record was 12 liters in a day. <laughs> and yeah, It was double digits, yeah. We, I, I asked her the follow-up question, does she approach HEF-PEF differently? And the answer was yes, she does, because those patients you know, are not going to respond well to such large, the way that their volume pressure are related. Paul, I'm not a physics guy. Um, the way that they're, the way that <laughs> Wait, they- Wait, hold on. Didn't you major in exercise physiology? <laughs> that was like 20 years ago, dude. <laughs> All right, just um, checking in. Yeah, that was like 20 years ago. So anyway, um, yeah. But but anyway, the point was that you can't, patients with HEF-PEF are not going to tolerate, in general, are not going to tolerate a 12 liter you know, fluid removal in a day. Sometimes with HEF-REF, they will. And uh, so if the patient's feeling well, you're diuresing them, the sodium, creatinine, potassium look okay, patient's feeling okay, you can go faster than two liters a day. But typically on the first day, I think she said she shoots for like a two liter negative, um, net negative for the day. Beth, what did you, what have you seen? Have you seen patients getting thrown on like Lasix drips and um, have you seen any different approaches in, in your travels? No, I think this, yeah, this is pretty standard for, you know, being aggressive with, with the diuresis, with the, the idea that, you know, their kidney function, um, you know, you're kind of taking stress off of them, you know, with the diuretics, it's going to be less venous congestion and things like that. Um, I love the phrase gentle diuresis though. I'm sad to see we can't, we shouldn't use it. It sounds so nice. It's like, yeah. we're just gently it diuresing. Nice. Like, just gently. It does. It does. Well, RIP gentle diuresis because Dr. <laughs> Kittleson, Dr. Kittleson mentioned that if if the patient's on something like adiafurosemide IV twice a day and their urine output is not to her liking, she has a low threshold to start patients on a uh, furosemide drip and it starts at 10 milligrams an hour and goes up from there. Um, if the patient's on those high doses of diuretic, so more than 80 IV uh, twice a day of furosemide or on the drip at more than like 80 milligrams per hour, which seems like a ridiculous dose, she will think about adding uh, metazolone there. So these sequential nephron blockade, uh, as as the people in the know call it. And that's that's when she thinks about adding that on. I know probably other cardiologists have a lot of different times when they would would jump to that. Paul, did you have a comment on that? No, I, I actually, I really appreciate So, you know, I have comments on everything, but I, I appreciated her point that she's actually a little bit nervous about metolazone. She actually mentions that she worries that it works a little bit too well. So you can sometimes, and I think that's my concern with it too. You can sort of see a tank potassium and you have to be really, really careful with your electrolytes and, and just kind of keep a close eye on the patient when you, if you do feel that you need to add it. Sort of related to that, she the, the other point that I really like that she made is just being kind to your patient. So she talked about turning off the drip at nighttime, not signing out nighttime diuresis, because that's just a cruel and unusual thing to do for both your patient and your night floats. And she made sort of the larger point, like you should be at a point where you're saying, I've done my job during the day and I've effectively diuresed the patient. You don't have to do anything with them at this point. So and if, it, if there is something that you need to, you know, you should be assessing your goals earlier. And if you're not making there, try to get them negative to where you want them to be before you know, 10 o'clock at night, because at that point, it's just cruel and unusual punishment to be checking basic metabolic panels and trying to get the patient to pee more often. Just they're already miserable in the hospital. Just be kind at night and let them get their sleep. And that sounds like such yeah. a basic ask, but I think that it's helpful that she highlighted it because 
I've realized, you know, as I'm getting ready to step up and be an intern next year, those are the sort of things that you're when you're so like cognitively overloaded, you don't necessarily think of. Like, I don't know if I would have necessarily realized, oh, I could turn off the IV overnight, you know, like, I just think that it's helpful to like reiterate that. So like, you know, PGY1s can be like, hey, I'm going to see how I can put that order in or put time yeah. restraints on it. And, and use common sense. Like if the patient's on non-invasive ventilation because like their lungs are filled with fluid, like you can give a dose of diuretic at nighttime. But we're talking about the patient yes. that's just like chilling in the hospital, waiting for you to remove 30 pounds of fluid, which is not an <laughs> uncommon thing. And, you know, that yep. person, they can probably take eight hours off to, to sleep, is, I think was her point. So she mentioned that when does she switch back to oral diuretics? It's pretty much when the patient has resolution of symptoms. If you've been getting Zen with the JVP every day and you start to see that normalize, uh, their edema is improved. That's when she'll switch them over to orals. She likes to watch them on their oral diuretics for about 24 hours and shoots for about a net negative of 500 mLs because she knows that their behavior is going to be different at home. But if she's like has them on oral diuretics and they're negative like two liters, she thinks that's probably too much and she might adjust things. I think probably local practice varies a lot whether you keep patients for 24 hours once you have them on oral diuretics. But she did mention, and I think this is a really important thing, the follow-up. It has to be – the recommendations are within a week because there's just so much that can go wrong. You've been messing around with the patient's medications. And a lot of the times when I see patients in the primary care office and they've been admitted, they're confused about the changes that have been made to their medications. They don't understand why. Maybe they forgot to take a new medication that was started or they couldn't get it because of insurance. Paul, I'm sure you see this kind of thing all the time. Yeah. And I, I think we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. I think, you know, part of the discharge plan obviously is based upon the patient's home support system, their access to the medications or, you know, a Saturday discharge is a very different animal than a Tuesday discharge. Um, so just who's going to be at home with them? Does the patient have a good under baseline understanding of their regimen? There's a lot of factors that go into discharge in addition to sort of how negative they are with their diuretics. So it's, it's, yeah, there's probably not one good answer, but I, I think her broad guidelines are very helpful. So this was our recap of the Kittleson rules acute heart failure episode but if you haven't heard this like do yourself a favor go back and listen to the full episode because she is just a joy to listen to and it was so packed that we couldn't possibly get to everything here with that all said paul can you take us to the outro happy to and away we go this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole yummy <laughs> with feeling that time get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and while you're there sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox and we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and to do that we need your feedback so please subscribe rate and review the show on apple podcasts it really does help also you can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com a special thanks to our social media team beth garbs garbatelli on twitter mad dog maddie morgan on instagram Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And we should be sure to thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.